0: Welcome to the podcast of Sozo Church. For more information about Sozo, please visit SozoSMTX.com. Good morning. Good morning. Awesome stories. Wow. I love it. So... Uh, I, uh, I grew up in Houston with a dad who owns a construction company, and, and so one of the things that I started doing from a young age is I actually started working construction. Like at five, I would, I would go to work with my dad. Anybody have the opportunity ever to go to work with their dad? So I worked with my, with my dad, and from a young age, my dad actually put me to work. Like he, he wasn't like, hey, come to work with me and then sit in the corner, but from a young age, I was like sweeping and moving bricks and all that kind of stuff. And it tended to be that, it, that I would go to work with him in the summer in Houston, which is like swamp air, um, and, and it was pretty pretty difficult, like hot, and, and my dad uh, really like, loved us, but really didn't care if I was uncomfortable. Like he, was, he brought us actually there to work, and to work hard, and so one, one year, I was probably about 10 years old. My older brother Josh was 12, and we were working together at this historic house in kind of the downtown area in Houston, and... And so my dad had us uh, for the day and, and he said, hey guys, what I want you to do is I want you to move these bricks. And so he said, hey, take this big old stack of bricks and move them across the yard. And so we moved them across the yard and we got exhausted so much so that I think my, my brother lost his, his lunch and he was you know probably on the edge of, of heat stroke and, uh, and we were worn out. Well, we're back at work with him the next week and he says, hey boys, that, that stack of bricks actually that's over here, it actually needs to get moved back over there. And I started catching on that my dad was not so concerned with how productive we could be for him, but he was actually there because, he one, he wanted to spend time with us. That's, that's probably the primary reason we were there. And he was paying us actually to spend time with us. So we actually were costing him money to move bricks from over there to over here and back and forth. And <laughs> And, and, but he was also teaching us something. He was teaching us hard work. And so we learned from my dad from a young age to work hard. And, and years would go by. And I remember in junior high, uh, we were building several uh, laser tag facilities kind of across Houston. And so uh, one summer, my job was to sweep out the maze. Um, and so uh, I don't know if you've been in those things, but the mazes are, are, are quite large. And so I just would like sweep out the maze and just continue to sweep and sweep. I became a master sweeper um, in, those, in those years. Uh, I also um, have, have not lost at laser tag in years because I just know how, to, how those things work. Um, but, but what I realized that my dad was doing in my life is he was actually working to develop something in me. He wasn't... Uh, concerned with how productive I would be in those moments, but he was actually training me for so much more. And so I get into my later high school years and I actually begin to run jobs for him. And part of the reason uh, why he could trust me to run jobs for him at 17, 18 years old is because he had actually seen me work hard even when it didn't seem to matter to me. And he realized that I could actually represent him well on the job. You see, my dad now in his late 50s is still the hardest working man on any job that he's ever at. And and he knew that if he could teach me from a young age what it looked like to work hard, that I could actually represent him well on the job and not be the spoiled 17, 18-year-old whose daddy owns the company and doesn't know how to work hard but gets to tell people what to do. And so uh, he wasn't so concerned with my comfort. He was more concerned with my character. And so we've been in this, this series for the last few weeks called The Journey of Sonship. And it's not the journey to sonship because it's not actually about arriving. It's actually about the journey with our father and becoming more and more like him. And so in our first week, what we started with was uh, the, the story of the prodigal son, which is actually the story of the good father. We also looked at uh, Matthew chapter 6 when the disciples asked Jesus how to pray and he he starts off by teaching them to pray uh, our father and he used the word Abba which in that language was not the language of prayer it was the language of everyday conversation and what Jesus was teaching his disciples to do is to relate to God in the same way that he does and that's true for us is that we actually have the same access to the father and the right to call him daddy in the same way that Jesus did We kind of landed that talking about how we were adopted. And so what God did as a father, he's always been a father. It's always been his desire to father us. And when we look at the story of the Bible, I think one of the primary lenses we can see it through is God as a father raising sons. And he started as a loving father, raising sons, and we see it with Adam and Eve, and they didn't quite grasp the authority that they were entrusted with, and so uh, they, they took kind of the hard road around, and, and so did many of us, and we ended up in the place we are because of the decisions that they made, although I think most of us probably would have made the same ones. Um, but what God is doing through Jesus is he's actually restoring sonship to us so that we could learn how to carry the authority He has, And so our our primary picture actually of salvation is not simply that I'm saved into heaven, but I'm actually adopted into a family. John 17.3, Jesus says, this is eternal life to know the Father. Eternal life is not simply a destination, but it's actually a relationship. And that's what God came to give us. And then we, we talked last week about the journey into the wilderness and how... Jesus had this incredible moment at his baptism where he hadn't actually done anything to earn the Father's favor, but the Father points him out in front of everybody and says, This is my dearly, son, my dearly beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. And realizing that our position in God is not determined by what we do, but it's in our relationship with Him. And yet, the, the next line that we see after that moment is that Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. He went into the wilderness, not because God wasn't pleased with him, but because God was actually using difficulty to teach him what it looks like to live in a place of victory. And I think that's true for us. And so often we throw fits like spoiled brats and say, God, why are you allowing this to happen? And what God is saying to us is, I'm actually teaching you not how to suffer, but actually how to be victorious. I think God wants a a mature people that, that learn how to be victorious. After I preached that message, uh, Jeff Riddle, who's a, a good friend and in many ways a mentor, he, he sent me this, this meme picture that I thought was really cool, and it told a, a short story. Uh, and it, it, Not a funny story, actually, but just a, a, a short story. It said that there were some scientists who were growing like this whole habitat in a, a biosphere. And so they were growing trees, and what they realized in the trees that they were growing, the trees kept falling down. They would grow way, way big, but then all of a sudden they would collapse. And the reason why they would collapse is that there was no wind there, no difficulty there to teach them how to be strong. And I think so often we want our lives to be difficulty free, but what we don't realize is is it's the difficulty that actually matures us if we choose to embrace it, not as orphans, but as sons and daughters of God. And so what I want to do actually is, is go back into Luke chapter 15. We started here, and I, and I think this is the right place to end. And I, I'm not going to read the whole story. I'll summarize it for you real quick um, if you weren't there um, a couple weeks ago, but you've probably heard this story before. It's interesting, though, that Jesus tells them um, a parable uh, And then it's three stories, and so it's actually three stories that are the same story. And so we see that there's a lost sheep, and what we find is that the sheep just kind of wanders off, and sometimes we get uh, lost because we we wander off. We actually leave the shepherd. We are created for relationship with the shepherd, but we wander off. And then the the second story is the parable of the lost coin, And, and the coin actually didn't lose itself. The circumstances lost the coin, right? And sometimes we're lost not because we wander off in rebellion, but just because our circumstances and situations put us in a place of lostness. And then we see in that final story, the son who actually chooses to disown his dad, takes his inheritance, and, and he runs off. And, and he comes back home, and the father, who had to be waiting for him because he sees him when he's a long way off, he, he, he runs after the son. And it's an interesting picture of repentance because we tend to think that repentance is us turning around to God. And that's that's part of it. But it's actually turning around to recognize that the Father is actually running after us. And so, but what we see in this story, what I want to highlight in just a, a, a few minutes is this. Is that we see two sons and neither son got it, right? Both were actually living as orphans in in the same household. One of them, their orphan mentality, their disconnection from the father took them a long way away. And the other one actually kept him there in this like works mentality, trying to work for the father so that he could gain what he already had. And it's actually an incredible picture of religion. That's what religion tends to do to us, is that it makes us work for what we already have. In Ephesians 1.3, Paul says this, that you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. You actually lack nothing. And so, but what we see actually in between the lines, there's actually a picture essentially in the negative space here. We see a picture of what real sonship looks like. And that's what I wanna highlight this morning is, is what does real sonship looks, look like? Because what my, what my dad was doing is he was not raising kids. My dad was raising adults. He he wasn't raising us so that we would just know how to receive from him, but he was actually raising us so that we would know how to represent him. And that's what sonship is really all about, is that we learn how to represent our father. And so what we see here is, is we see a snapshot. And in this snapshot in Luke 15, neither son seemed to fully get it, right? But I actually want to tell you who you are this morning, if I can do that, is that you may have been, and maybe this morning you are in the place of the prodigal, where you've been running around like crazy, and you just, you ended up here because you realized you need to come home. And maybe you have been in the place of the older brother, where you're working hard to try to earn the, the father's pleasure. But I, But I think, though many of us have been there before, I think the point is not simply that we recognize the father, but it's actually how we respond to the father. And so I want to tell you who you are. I don't believe that you're the prodigal anymore. And I don't believe that, that you're the older brother anymore who, who's working hard to try to earn something from his father, not recognizing that everything that the father has is yours. I, I think what you actually are is, is that you're the, the son, the daughter who gets it. And I just wanna show you what it looks like to get it. I I think the perfect picture, the one, the son that we don't see in this story, but I think he's there, it's Jesus. And he's the prototype for us. He is the ultimate elder brother and he is the example of what we're supposed to look like. And so what we see in this story is that when the, the prodigal comes home, what we see is the father's response to him. You see, he's cooked up this story. He's like, okay, I've come to my senses, which are that I'm hungry and I'm acting like a pig, wanting to eat pig food. He's come to his senses. He's not come to recognize who his father is yet. He's just come to his senses thinking, maybe I could just work in my father's house. And and the father waiting, watching for him, doesn't listen to his argument on why he should be accepted back into the house. Why? Because the father actually doesn't relate to us based on our own merits. God's not relating to you based on what you have done or what you haven't done. God's relating to you based on the fact that you have been brought into his family, that you belong to him. And so his response is this, is that the first thing that he does is he tells the servants, go and get the robe. Now, the robe is an incredibly significant part of that story. That robe was actually for the guest of honor. It was for the one who was worthy of honor in the house. So a guest of honor, somebody who was notable, like an A-list person comes to the house and they would put this coat on them and they'd sit at the table in the seat of honor, like at the head of the table, and they would receive all sorts of honor. We see here what honor looks like. We see actually in the kingdom of God, Honor is not what you deserve, it's actually what you give. You see, the honorable one, the one worthy to wear that coat, ultimately was the Father. The Father was actually worthy of honor, and so honor is not that I, that I look up to you and honor you, it's that I actually act honorably, which is that I give honor away. And I give honor not because anybody deserves it. You give honor not because anybody deserves it, but because you're an honorable person. And so the father being honorable honors the relationship with the son. The relationship with the son is the point, not the son's merit or performance. And so he puts the robe on that son. I'd like for you to grasp actually that the one who is worthy of all honor honors you. God honors you. And it doesn't take away from his honor. It's actually an extension of his honor, but God honors you. In scripture, we see this incredible interplay between honor, glory, and authority. Honor is actually what we give to somebody. Glory is actually what we carry. So often people say, don't steal from the Lord's glory. And let me me tell you this, you can't steal what's free. In John 17, it actually says, Jesus says, Father, give them the glory that you've given me, which I think is actually the glory of sonship. God wants you to be glorified in that you would be a bright light that would actually draw people to him, that you would represent who he is. And then, so, so honor is actually what we give to somebody who is being glorified. Did you know that you are being glorified? You're actually being made more and more like Jesus if you participate in his work in your life. And so then authority is actually what we carry when we've experienced glory, And so you actually have authority. And we see it in this story. When the father puts the ring on the son, what we see is he's actually giving him authority. Here's what's incredible. The son had blown it, right? Like he had actually taken probably about a third of the estate and he had absolutely blown it and yet the father puts the ring on him, you have to understand that the ring was actually had the family crest on it. It was like the ability to do, it was the ability to do business for the family. It was essentially restoring what that son had actually already proven that he was incapable of doing well. You know that God actually, here's what grace does. Mercy treats us And doesn't give us what we actually deserve. But what grace does is it takes it a step further and it actually even empowers us in the place of our weakness so that we could do what we couldn't do before, so that we could do what we failed at before. And so I love watching in the kingdom of God seeing people actually entrusted in the place that they've already failed, that they've actually proven by their own actions that they're not trustworthy and yet God says, "You know what? I'm going to trust you again." Some of you have blown it royally. Probably all of us actually, not just the person next to you. And yet God still entrusts us with authority. He's actually not scared of our mistakes. My dad was was not scared of my mistakes. When I was working for him, he wasn't afraid that I was gonna blow it. He knew that I would. He wasn't scared of it because he knew who he was and that he has the ability to work all things for my good, even if I blew it royally. One of my favorite things to do with kind of young leaders in our church family, and it doesn't just apply for them, is that I'll tell them, I can't wait for you to fail. Now I'm not excited about their failure, but what they'll find is that my relationship with them is not based on their performance. Thank you. That there's actually way more grace for them than oh, I blew it once and now I'm out. Yes, it thank you. And, I, and I thank God. Sometimes he, he never causes us to sin. He doesn't want us to sin. But when we blow it, sometimes that's the moment that we can actually recognize how good of a father he is and how much grace there is for us. And we stop playing performance games and we start recognizing how good he really is. And so he puts the ring on his finger and then he brings out sandals and sandals essentially were saying, hey, you're a son, you're not a servant, you're not a slave, you don't work for me, you've actually been restored into the position of sonship because servants and slaves typically didn't wear sandals, didn't have shoes on their feet, but but sons and royalty did. And then what we see is that, uh, that he, he actually says, bring the, the fattened calf and kill it. There's gonna be a celebration. And I, I think ultimately that represents the, the sacrifice of Jesus, that there's actually going to be a celebration. And I think what happened when Jesus died on the cross from Earth's perspective, seemed like the darkest moment in history. But I think heaven was actually rejoicing in that moment. Heaven didn't wait for the resurrection. They knew it was coming. But they celebrated, heaven celebrated at the crucifixion because they knew in that moment that a blood covenant was being established or had been established that was going to bring the prodigals, the orphans, back into the family. And so there's this celebration. And I think for you to understand, God is still celebrating over you. He didn't just celebrate at the moment you stepped into the kingdom, but he actually, he just rejoices over you. Scripture says with singing. He's actually singing over you. And so to know that God actually sees you as a son, a daughter, that you belong to him, that he treats you with honor, that he gives you authority, even in the place that you recently blew it. And then he celebrates over you. But then we see this, this older son, and we see another picture of, I believe, what sonship was supposed to look like. The, son, the older son doesn't want to come into the big celebration with the and calf. He, he's actually bitter about it. He's angry at his dad. He's dishonoring his father in that moment, but he's, he's, he's really upset. And he says, Father, don't you, like, I've done all this stuff for you, and you, you never gave me anything. And he said, The father says to the son, don't you recognize that everything I have is yours? The father says to the son, don't you recognize that everything I have is yours? The lie from the very beginning in the garden with Adam and Eve is that God is holding out on us. And I think so often we, re- we, we live with this poverty mentality that God is just, he, he's holding out on us. He's got good for us. And if I could just get this or that or that, then maybe I'd be okay, but God's not, he doesn't want me to have it. And I want you to know that God's not holding out on you. Sometimes he withholds from you for your own benefit, but he's not holding out on you. Recently, I heard it said that all of God's discipline is about protecting you from the blessing he wants to pour out on you so that it won't kill you. And so often we want the stuff, but God's saying, no, you can't handle that. And so what I wanna do is refine you a little bit so that you would actually have the capacity to hold it. But to understand that the Father says to you that everything he has is yours. Everything he has is yours. I believe this morning that you've heard that truth before, but I think this morning, God actually wants to break that lie out of your life. That he wants you to recognize that you're actually royalty. And he wants to to obliterate a poverty mentality that thinks that you actually lack anything. God is not holding out on you. And so what we see is that a mature son recognizes his place in the family, that everything the father has is yours, that, that the father actually treats you with honor, not because you deserve it, but because you're related to him, not because you've earned it, but because you're his kid. And, and that he actually entrusts you. He entrusts you with authority. One of the, the saddest things that I see in the kingdom is believers not recognizing that they've been given a lot of authority. And we pray from a place of poverty instead of a place of authority. God, would you do this? Would you help me? And God's saying, no, I've already given you the authority. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, and now I'm sending you out with that authority. And so I'm saying, use the authority you've given me. Stop asking me to do what I've already given you authority to do. The Father's given us authority. And so what we see in the story is that it actually highlights, I believe, two primary principles of sonship. One is privilege and the other is responsibility. Let's take a, a look at privilege, a scary word in our culture, I know. Privilege. Romans eight seventeen says this, now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. You're a co-heir with Christ. Would you say that with me? I'm a co-heir of Christ. I'm a co-heir of Christ. That means that whatever Jesus has access to, so do you because you're a co-heir with Christ. That means that you actually lack nothing. It says then, if indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. It's not talking future tense like one day in the afterlife you share in his glory, but it's actually, it goes on to say it, in like 28 through 32, about what it looks like. And it's saying that we're actually being glorified, that he's not holding out. But what we have to understand is that suffering, hardship is so that it grows our capacity to live as sons and share in his glory. And so often we're in the middle of expansion and yet we hate the stretching, but God's saying, hey, I'm actually, it's hard, but I'm increasing your capacity right now. And so the stretching hurts a little bit. You're a co-heir with Christ. When do heirs get their inheritance? They don't get it when they die. Like, if I'm giving you an inheritance, I can choose to give it to you before I die or at my death. But you get it actually when you're alive. Right? Right? So we've got to stop saying, hey, when I get to heaven, that's my inheritance. What God is doing is he's saying, hey, I'm giving you your inheritance. Would you receive it? Here's how we receive it. We believe it. We, just, we say, okay, I believe you. You've actually given it to me. And so often we think, well, that's just afterlife stuff. That's baloney. So often we put off into the afterlife what God has meant for us to receive here and now. says that we're co-heirs with Christ. Romans 5.17 says that we reign in life with Christ. Did you know that you were supposed to reign in life with Christ, that you're actually royalty? Think about it. If your father is the king of the universe, what does that make you? Royalty. The, the, The problem with that mentality is that one, we don't have a good example of royalty in our culture. But two, the problem with that is that when we get royalty, we don't match it with responsibility, and so we've picked, we get a picture of dysfunction. Right? Like you think of somebody that has privilege but no responsibility, it's like, that's dysfunctional. That's like made for TV, like reality TV show kind of stuff, right? <laughs> but when we match our privilege with our responsibility, what we get is royalty that sees the world transformed. Ephesians 1.3, I read that one before. What we see in Genesis 12.3, this is still true for us, but God told Abraham that I'm gonna bless you so that you could be a blessing. You see, part of the problem that we have when people start talking about being co-heirs with Christ and being royalty when we start talking about abundance and all of that stuff is that we don't match privilege with responsibility. And so we think about a whole bunch of people who are just getting fat and happy and not doing anything with what's been entrusted to them. Right? Right? Like, like we, we've created this category that we actually kind of, a lot of the church makes fun of and we say, well, that's the prosperity gospel. It's like, oh, I don't want that. That's the prosperity gospel. Let me say this to you. The gospel is so that you would prosper. And when we make a category, maybe out of some abuses and some like overextensions, we miss the fact that God actually wants us to prosper. And when we interpret prosperity simply as a financial prosperity, it actually reveals the idolatry in our hearts and our lives. But when we recognize that God wants us to prosper so that we can be a blessing, we then start to embrace it. And it does not exclude, by the way, financial blessing. Sometimes we actually spiritualize our poverty mentality and then blame other people for having what we don't have, and we consider ourselves more spiritual. We're like, oh, you know, they've got all that's ridiculous. And I'm not saying that people's wealth is necessarily a sign of their spiritual maturity, but it was for Solomon, and so it can be for some. But I also don't think that prosperity is measured by how much I have. It's actually measured by how much I give away because my privilege is matched with responsibility. And you know, some of the pictures that we get of wealthy people on TV, which are probably caricatures more than reality, right? But we see that that money doesn't actually make them happy, right? But I I think living with incredible privilege that's matched with responsibility that gets to bring the kingdom of heaven and make it available on earth make you pretty happy. I think you have joy actually that overflows. One of my favorite things to do is to give away what God's given to me. 1 Peter 2, 9 but you are chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, so that you may declare the praises of Him who called you out of darkness and into His wonderful light. You have to understand that you really are a royal priesthood. And when it uses that word royal, it uses the same word for king. So you're not just like a, a, a prince. That, that's spoiled, that doesn't have any responsibility and really doesn't have much control, here's what God is doing, is that he's actually wanting to raise us up so that we understand what it looks like to steward what he's given us in such a way that he actually doesn't even want to micromanage how we do it. He wants to entrust it to us. In Revelation 1, halfway through 5, and into verse 6, it says to him who loves us and has released us from our sins by his blood. Let me just stop there. That's kind of the intro to where I'm going with that verse. But it says that you've been released from your sins by his blood. If you've been released from your sins by his blood, why in the world are you still hanging on to them? He's purchased them, he's taken them from you and he's not holding on to them. It actually says that he throws them as far as the East is from the West. And so often we identify ourselves by our sins, by the mistakes of our past, instead of recognizing that I'm not marked by that, but he's actually released me from my sin by his blood. There's some folks in this room, I just feel it impressed by the Holy Spirit. Probably doesn't take, it probably just takes common sense, but to recognize you did something 20 years ago. And you're still living in response to what you did when Jesus said, hey, you're free from that. And then it says this, Jesus, who has made us to be a kingdom priest to his, father, his God and Father, to him be the glory and power forever and ever. God has made us to be a kingdom. Incredible privilege in the position that he's placed you and I in. You are privileged. You're his kid, and you have access to all of the assets of heaven. It says that if you ask anything in his name that it would be given to you, that's that seal that the Son was given. And the kingdom privilege is always matched with responsibility. First Corinthians 3:9, 2 Corinthians 6:9 calls us co-laborers or co-workers with God. It doesn't call us slaves. It calls us co-workers and co-laborers with God. Here's what that means, is that you and I are being invited into the work that God is doing in the world. It actually says co-workers, co-laborers with Christ. And here's why it's Christ and not even God, is this. What we see in uh, Psalm one fifteen verse sixteen. Let's see if it's up there. Psalm one fifteen sixteen. You got that one? Yeah, there it is. The highest heavens belong to the Lord, but the earth He has given to mankind. Let me read that one more time. The highest heavens belong to God, but the earth He has given to mankind. Here's the point. That I want to make with that verse that I believe that verse actually makes is this, is that God is the king of the universe and he created the earth for us to steward. He started with Adam and Eve, as kids, and they blew it. Right. But he didn't give up. He then brought Jesus as the second Adam to bring everything into its right order. And it had to be Jesus who was fully God and fully man to do that because what God had done is he had made an assignment for mankind. And so Jesus had to be a man in order to to take up that assignment. God was not looking to do what man was intended to do. He wasn't trying to take our responsibility from us. When God sets stuff in order, he's not trying to disrupt the order. It's interesting when Jesus was in the desert, that God actually sent angels to minister to him. Why? Because they had an assignment. That's the role of a part of the angel armies is that they actually minister to the saints. And so God could have shown up and ministered to his son because he's God and he could do whatever he wants to do, but he, he doesn't disrupt the order that he established. And those angels had an assignment to minister to the saints. And so he wasn't going to say, well, with this one, I'll do it. But what he's going to say is, no, that's your role. And I'm not going to take you from that role. And in the same way, when God entrusted the world to humanity, he's not looking to pull back that authority. He actually wants to empower us to do it really well. Wow. And so that's what he came to do with Jesus. And so he established divine order. And so God has invited you and I to go to work with him. This life is about going to work with dad. And let me tell you this, you're never probably going to earn your keep. So get over it. Let me take the probably out of it. You're never going to earn your keep. You're never going to get... What you deserve, thank God, you're always gonna get more than you deserve because that's the way that God works. Because he's not treating you based on what you've done, he's treating you based on who you are in him. And I believe that it's time that we begin to recognize what God has entrusted to us by calling us his kids. And, And that we would stop acting out of a works mentality. And I believe this morning, and in fact, what I'd like for our ministry time to look like is if you're struggling with trying to earn from God, I believe that God wants to break that this morning. This morning, as I was praying for our church family, what I saw was that chains were falling off. And if you believe that you're disconnected from God, you're living as an orphan, as if it all depends on you, I believe God wants to break that off of you this morning. And it's not simply about somebody praying for you, although I think that's part of it. It's actually about you receiving what God wants to do in you. And then I believe that God also wants to break off a poverty mentality. And here's a a, a few ways you can know if you have a poverty mentality. If somebody else gets blessed and you're disappointed, you've got a poverty mentality. If you're judging what everybody else is doing with what they have, you've got a poverty mentality. if, if you think that God is holding out on you, you've got a poverty mentality. If you think that God wants to bless other people and not you, you've probably got a poverty mentality. If money and resources and all that stuff flies through your hands like clothes going out of style, you probably have a poverty mentality. I believe God wants to break that off of you this morning. And I'm not talking about being poor or being at a certain class level. That's not even the point. The point is is our ability to steward everything, not just finances, but everything that God entrusts to us. So ministry team, would y'all come forward? And I think also, ultimately, the, the solution to this is that we would recognize our place as sons, our place as daughters, that God that he's pleased with us, that he loves us, and he loves to bless us. And I believe that as we do that, as we recognize that, it actually positions us to walk in in incredible privilege and incredible authority. Also this morning, just as we were praying, uh, Dana, who is uh, our prayer ministry leader, she uh, just really sensed that God wanted to heal somebody's, actually their, their ovaries. So I guess it would be a lady. Um, wants, wants to <laughs> uh, Maybe a younger lady. God wants to heal uh, ovaries this morning. And so maybe that's something that you're dealing with. Um, I, I also just had this sense as I was praying actually throughout the week, as, as I was reminded of Uh, The woman with the issue of blood, and she had that for 12 years. And I think sometimes when we're suffering with things for a long time, we begin to become somewhat comfortable in them. And I believe that God actually wants to bring healing in areas where where you're like, man, I've given up. Like, I've tried everything. I've gone to to people to pray for healing. I've gone to doctors and specialists and all that stuff. And I just really believe this morning that there's significant breakthrough, even for people that have suffered with long-term stuff, that does not exempt people who are suffering with short-term stuff. If you have a prayer need this morning, it's regular that we see God do what only he can do um, on a Sunday morning. And so I just encourage you to receive prayer. Stand with me. Jesus, we love you. Father, I thank you that we are your kids, that you've adopted us into your family and that we're not slaves and we're not orphans, but we're your children. And so Lord, I ask God this morning that you would impart a spirit of sonship that we would grasp that we belong to you. Lord, that we would begin to realize how good you are and how good you are to us. Maybe this morning you've never said yes to Jesus, given your life to Jesus. This would be a great time. These folks would love to pray with you for that. Lord, I thank you for what you're doing in us. Holy Spirit, we just invite you to have your way. Amen.